Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we'll start with one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions, Matisse Diebenkorn at the Baltimore Museum of Art. My guest is SFMOMA-based exhibition co-curator Janet Bishop, who co-organized the show with the BMA's Catherine Rothkopf. As you can no doubt tell from the title, the exhibition looks at how Henri Matisse's painting and drawing influenced Richard Diebenkorn. It's on view in Baltimore through January 29th, 2017, when it will travel to San Francisco. The exhibition's catalog was published by the BMA and SFMOMA in association with Delmonico Books Prestel. Amazon offers it for 50 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Jill Lloyd joins me to discuss Klimt and the Women of Vienna's Golden Age, 1900 to 1918, which is at New York's Neue Gallery through January 16th next year. Lloyd contributed an essay to the catalog titled The Viennese Woman, A Community of Strength. It's terrific. We'll discuss it. You can get the catalog from Amazon for $54. But first up, Janet Bishop, after a break. The history of the civil rights movement is commonly illustrated with well-known photographs from Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma, leaving the visual story of the movement outside the South remaining to be told. In North of Dixie, Civil Rights Photography Beyond the South, a new book from Getty Publications, historian Mark Speltz shines light on images of everyday activists who fought campaigns against segregation, police brutality, and job discrimination in Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and many other cities. Visit shop.getty.edu to learn more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Degas, A New Vision, the most significant international survey of the work of Edgar Degas in nearly 30 years. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, assembled from public and private collections around the world. Opens October 16th exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Degas for more. The critically acclaimed major retrospective Francis Picabia, Our Heads Are Round So Our Thoughts Can Change Direction, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Quote, the show has a propulsive, joyous energy, says the New York Times. New York Magazine calls it, quote, a blast of fresh air just when we need it. Also on view is the powerful new exhibition, A Revolutionary Impulse, The Rise of the Russian Avant-Garde. Don't miss your chance to experience MoMA this holiday season. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org. And we're back. Janet Bishop, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. This is not a painting-to-one-painting-influence show a la Matisse Picasso, say. Those were two artists, of course, who literally answered specific canvases by by one and then by the other. And, and there aren't a lot of examples in the last 150 years of art history where where a one-to-one relationship can be that clear. So how would you describe how uh, you and your co-curators have set up Matisse and Diebenkorn? Well, we were fascinated by the fact that Richard Diebenkorn began looking at Matisse's work when he was a college student and, and, and pretty much kept that up for the rest of his career. So what we decided to do was to structure the show according to the arc of Diebenkorn's career, to follow him from uh, the first works where we see evidence of his interest in Matisse appear in his own canvases and then move through his career sort of more or less chronologically. And then along the way, we have brought in 
Matisse works, either specific Matisse works that he knew and and studied carefully, either in person or in books, or pieces where we, my co-curator Katie Rothkopf and I, saw the the, the resonance between what Diebenkorn was doing and what what Matisse was doing. You, you mentioned Diebenkorn and his various engagements with with Matisse. Scholars and curators over the years have typically found the. 1952 Matisse retrospective that Diebenkorn saw at UCLA as kind of his first significant exposure to Matisse. But this show argues that there were a couple of really important earlier engagements that merit attention. One was at the suburban San Francisco home of Sarah and Michael Stein, and the other was at the Phillips Collection near where uh, Diebenkorn was stationed during World War II. Let's start in, in Washington. What what was important Matisse-wise that Diebenkorn saw in Washington? Well, Diebenkorn, had, his undergraduate studies were cut short, and he enlisted in the Marines and was stationed in Virginia. And as it turned out, he ended up having a fair amount of free time, and he used that to look at art. So he went up and down the eastern seaboard. He went to Philadelphia. He went to New York, but really spent a lot of time at the museums in Washington. The Phillips Collection was his favorite. It was free. They had concerts on weekends. You could smoke in the galleries, which was very appealing to both uh, Diebenkorn and his wife, Phyllis. And he had an opportunity to to visit paintings that really captured his attention again and again and again. One of those was Matisse's Studio Case saint Michel from 1916. It's a you know interior, there's a model on a couch, and there's a view out the window. And the painting was enormously appealing to Diebenkorn. He was fascinated by its structure, the dark interior and the light exterior, the subject of the model, and and the fact that Matisse was willing to show evidence of his process in the finished painting. So it's not a painting that had an immediate impact on Diebenkorn, but really it was sort of the, the, the key canvas during this sort of decade of gestation when after you know he started looking at, at Diebenkorn's work and when you first see you know, evidence of that careful looking sort of show up in his own work. It's a famously difficult Matisse, full of ideas that Matisse would continue exploring for, 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 for many years. As, as we've sort of hinted, there's really no individual Diebenkorn that comes out of it, but the ideas that he gets out of that painting stay present really for the rest of his career, I guess you'd say. I mean, to my mind, Urbana number 4 is pretty darn closely connected to that studio case on Michel. And that's, I, I think, one of the things that's that might be surprising to people who are thinking about what the connection might be between Matisse and Diebenkorn is that the impact of Matisse shows up in what is largely an abstract st- series of, of paintings, the Urbana paintings that he made you know, between, you know, mostly in 1953 when he was was teaching at the University of Illinois. But that I think that the, you know, there's there's no, there's no, the, the Urbana painting is not an interior. It's, there's no figure. It, it's primarily an abstract painting. But the structure of it, to my mind, relates really closely to that Phillips collection, Matisse. And then I think, you know, later on in, in Diebenkorn's career, when you get to his 
his figurative period and consider some of the the dark interiors that he did that have his own artwork sort of tacked up as these glowing rectangles on the wall behind him. I think that they they hearken back to to Studio K saw Michel as well. Is there anything that Diebenkorn saw at the Steins home in Palo Alto that, that you think was foundational? You know, I had an interesting conversation with Gerald Nordland about this. Of course, you know, one of the the organizers of one of the great, you know, past Stephen Korn retrospective projects and former director at SFMOMA. And, you know, what we sort of settled on together in our conversation is that that experience of going to Sarah Stein's home sort of primed him for what he would see later on the East Coast, there certain there wasn't an immediate impact of those works, but the paintings absolutely would have struck him. There's no question that he that he had a, a kind of you know aha moment when he was at her home. Femme au Chapeau would have been very prominently displayed and a piece that that he certainly could you know would not have missed. The painting that's in the LA County Museum's collection T is is a very large canvas, um, one so big that the Steins had to wall over a window in order to install it in their home. That's a piece that, that he, he also certainly would have you know seen and taken note of. Um, it's the way that the, you know, the, the figures are sitting around a table is something that you, you kind of see that subject element sort of show up in, in Diebenkorn's representational period. I can't imagine that the Bay of Nice wouldn't have resonated with him. The really the luminous view of the water, and it seems like there's a structural relationship as well as a color relationship to his later Ocean Park paintings, and uh, and then you know I think some of the the smaller paintings too would have would have also you know they would have they would have been interesting to him you know whether he knew what to do with that interest at that stage of his career you know, he probably didn't, but, but it, it took, you know, it just, it took a while. It took a while of, of, of looking, but I think, you know, he, he himself said that, you know, that, that was a, that was a really important first encounter. Well, let's get to the 1952 show at UCLA. It was curated by Alfred Barr. It traveled west from MoMA. Diebenkorn saw it while visiting his in-laws in the Valley. And shortly after seeing the exhibition, you, you argue in your catalog essay that this is where Matisse really begins to work his way into Diebenkorn's painting. And you argue that particularly clear example of that is Urbana Number no. 2, the painting also known as The Archer. Do tell. I mean, The Archer is an interesting, it, it, within, the, within the Urbana series, The Archer is the most, most figurative of the paintings. And, and so you've got this figure who's, who's holding his bow and arrow, and there's a lot of tension in the painting. And I think, you know, just in terms of structure and color, there's close relationship to some of the paintings in that Diebenkorn would have just seen in the, in the L.A. retrospective. To me, the place where it emerges even more clearly is in Urbana number no. 6, you know, one of the star paintings of the 1952 show was Matisse's Goldfish and Palette. And Urbana Number no. 6 has a very similar palette. It's black and blue and, and white and gray. And then there's these incredible red splotches that you get in both The Archer and in Urbana Number no. 6. And after seeing Matisse's Goldfish and Palette, it's just, it's almost impossible for me not to see those red splotches as having something to do with the fish. I don't think of them as fish 
per se, but having been inspired by the fish in Matisse's canvas. Of all of the Urbana pictures, the relationship I found most striking, interesting, fun to work through is is Urbana number five. And we're spending a lot of time on Urbana, which is suddenly reminding me that there's never been an Urbana show. We've had an Albuquerque show and a Berkeley show and an Ocean Park show, but Urbana languishes. But Urbana number five is is known as Beachtown. And you argued that it may come out of a niece painting or, or niece paintings. And I kind of think there might be something to that. Could could you break that down a little bit? Sure. I mean, well, it's interesting because, you know, there's throughout Stephen Korn's career, place tends to have a play a pretty big role in the paintings that, that the artist made. And when he went to Urbana, it was kind of a curious situation because he really did not respond very well to the landscape. He didn't respond very well to his his teaching assignment, which was in the architecture department. And so he he said that he even blacked out the windows of his studio and really kind of, you know, worked in this without looking out the window. And then he makes Beach Town. So it's really curious because it's this absolutely gorgeous painting. It's and it's filled with the 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 kind of you know, light and color that would be familiar to us from Matisse's niece paintings, would be familiar to him from Matisse's niece paintings. One of the great pictures in the 1952 retrospective was the artist to Chicago's interior at Nice, which was um, painted, you know, either in 1919 or 1920. And it's a, you know, it's an interior with a figure sitting on a porch and just outside of, of the room. And it's, it's got this, this, you know, this wonderful palette, this, and a great relationship between, you know, diagonals and, uh, and verticals and, um, and is really absolutely beautifully painted. And there's a lot of the, the palette and structure structure and approach that seems to be echoed in Diebenkorn's, you know, Urbana number five, which he gave the nickname Beachtown to, just because he said, you know, as he as he when he was finished making it, it that's what it reminded him of. It reminded him of a of a of a little seaside town and so decided to give it a, a kind of nickname or which was an unusual thing for him to do. The pink color of Matisse's studio slash hotel room in Nice is pretty darn present in the the left foreground of of Beach Town. The color of one of the French doors in the Matisse is is almost exactly a color in the upper left hand corner of Beach Town. It's it's you know kind of once once the eye begins to find these things, they're hard to miss. It also seems to me that this is about the point and the place, Urbana being the place. Where Diebenkorn begins to pivot from from really mining Picasso and de Kooning, which is what his time in, say, Albuquerque was overwhelmingly about, toward paying more attention to Matisse. Are there places in paintings or, or ideas or passages where you see a little bit of Picasso and de Kooning lingering or, or their influence in, in any of these these works about now? You know, I think that that's that he, you know, he's he's had spent a lot of time in San Francisco when it, you know, at the San Francisco Art Institute during the, you know, the time when San Francisco abstract um, expressionism was in full force. 
and uh, and then had had you know lived in Woodstock for a period of time and was was you know very aware of what of what was going on in terms of abstract expressionism on on both coasts. So so you know Devon Corn was somebody who was a very very devoted student of of art and art history, and he you know was not only looking at exhibitions all the time, but he was also, you know, building a, a library where he had um, many, many books and magazines that he would, that he would pour over and, and, and reference. And so Matisse is, is certainly just one of, of a lot of influences um, in his work and, and, and was the one that, that Katie Rothkoff and I, you know, sort of felt most strongly about um, exploring in, in our project. For me, the yellow rectangle in the bottom right-hand corner of Beachtown is is right out of Picasso's Harlequin, and maybe also, you know, obviously perhaps related to the similar palette in in Goldfish and Palette. It 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 feels like about as direct a crib as Diebenkorn makes from either artist, at least to me, in this period. From Urbana, um, the Diebenkorns move slash flee to Berkeley. <laughs> you argue, pretty interestingly, for a relationship between Matisse's Fauve years and the Berkeley paintings. What do you see in, in the Berkeley Diebenkorns that, that you think links them to Fauvism? I think it's 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 palette and it's the and it's the again it's the it's not so much structure in the in the Berkeley paintings, but the you know, the division of the division of space, and so some of the rhythms that we see in Matisse's fauve paintings, like Le Genet, Broom, are show up again in or show up in in Diebenkorn's Berkeley paintings. This was an, this was a it was interesting to consider this period of of Diebenkorn's work because he you know he made he made a lot of canvases in just a couple of years. And, and to my mind, there were some where the connection to Matisse was, was much, much stronger than in others. And so, you know, in, in, in thinking about what to, what to include in the exhibition, we obviously went for the ones where we found that the, the, that there was a real resonance, both the the way of, you know, the way of approaching a canvas in, in sections and, uh, and with a variety of paint handling and then also in palette. It's interesting to think about how, how Diebenkorn's palette changes from, from Albuquerque until now, until, until early Berkeley in, in 1953. It's a completely different palette. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, you know, by, by Berkeley number five, pretty much all of the Albuquerque colors are gone. How much fauvism other than landscape broom could Matisse have seen? The, the fauve works really to this day are kind of the, the Matisse's least appreciated in the U.S. So how much would Diebenkorn have seen? How much do you think he saw and, and how and, and, and were they the kind of the key paintings in, in switching his palette out of the, the kind of heavier, uh, weightier tones of, um, of of Albuquerque. Right. I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that Matisse was the key to the 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 Berkeley palette. Again, he was just very aware. And so he he knew the core of the fauve paintings from 
the Stein home. And, and he, he knew Girl with the Green Eyes, which is a little late. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, 1908. So it's not exactly Fove, but it still has some of those, you know, those aquas and, you know, and bright oranges that you see in the Fove paintings as well. And that's one that I think he, he would have really connected to, too, because of the, the combination of palette, but also, um, but also structure, just the way that the way that 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 painting, the way that he he organized the the different components of the painting. There's there was one point in an interview that was done in the early 80s with with Stephen Korn by a woman named Butterfield, and she asked him. Uh, specifically about um, fauve paintings, and he 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 indicated that they they weren't the Matisse's that meant the absolute most to him. The ones that that really did that we we learned from a a letter that he wrote to a Canadian researcher at one point was the paintings from from 19 you know. 14 to 1918. So I think he was, you know, he was aware of the the Fauve paintings. He was inspired by them, and but they weren't the the period of Matisse paintings that I think had the the biggest impact on him ultimately. So speaking of of Nice and the Nice interiors, you you argue that Matisse's quote pattern rich Nice interiors offer a precedent for building a composition through interlocking shapes. I thought that was an interesting idea. Do you have a uh, a couple of uh, paintings maybe one by by each artist that you you think demonstrates that? Well the the Odalisque paintings that are in the the Baltimore Museum collection I think are really interesting to look at in relationship to Diebenkorn's Berkeley paintings. So there's the seated Odalisque with her left knee bent. There's a checkerboard. It's from 1928. And uh, if you look at that with, for instance, Diebenkorn's Berkeley number 23, I think there's a there's a very sort of interesting way in which he picks up on a lot of the you know the various kind of shapes and and rhythms in in that that earlier piece. It's not a case where I would say. He was absolutely looking at seated odalisque, uh, that particular seated odalisque. But I think those those paintings were certainly would have would have been of interest. Yes, but artists also sometimes lie, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the, the 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 there's an extraordinary pairing in the show that that almost suggests the exact opposite of that. And and the Matisse painting is yellow pottery from Provence. The, 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 this is a one of the show's rare pairings, and it is a pairing that is just astonishing. I'll never see either painting again uh, the same way again. How did you put this this fairly early and extraordinarily weird Fauve still life together with Berkeley number 47 from, from 1955, which is really an unusual Berkeley painting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, well, this one, it was sort of an interesting story because we, you know, in... in thinking about the the exhibition um Berkeley for, number 47 was not was not initially on our list and as you know we we happily did extraordinarily well with loans but we um in looking at our spaces and thinking about the the way we wanted to tell the story um thought that the exhibition might benefit from another Berkeley painting and so you know the a, a good core of the exhibition comes from the collection of the Baltimore Museum of Art and comes from the collection of uh, of SF MoMA, and I, I thought, you know, I, I, I feel like I need to take another look at the Fisher Collection Berkeley painting, and so I went 
hadn't looked at that and it hadn't struck me the first time I saw it as especially you know, Matisse, but in looking at it again, after spending a lot of time sort of pouring over potential works of art for the show, I just had a, a, you know, one of those moments where I, I immediately thought of the yellow pottery from Provence and went to go look at a picture of it and then was really almost, you know, totally blown away by the fact that the Devoncorn's Berkeley number 47 almost looks as though he'd taken yellow pottery from Provence and just tipped it on its side. I mean, obviously there's a lot more, you know, well, he did a lot more than just that, but, but um, that's totally but he, there. <laughs> that's totally it's totally there. there. <laughs> he takes those, you know, those bands of color and extends them all the way across what had been vertical bands in the Matisse, in the Matisse to horizontal bands in his own canvas. And, uh, and then I was also looking at the painting with, with one of the, very gifted staff members from the Richard Diebenkorn catalog resume project, Carl Schmitz. And, and he was the one that pointed out that it looked like, like Diebenkorn's own coffee cup right down there in the, you know, the yellow band at the bottom. And that of course, you know, sort of sealed it for us. And, and the fact that there could even be a relationship between, between the two vessels was, was, was really exciting. In, in 1955 and, and for roughly the next decade, Diebenkorn returns to representational painting, both landscapes, but also studio still lifes. And I want to talk first about the still lifes. I, you know, it had never occurred to me to link Diebenkorn's studio still lifes from this period to Matisse. I'd always thought of them as, as, as being particularly Bernardian with, you know, the obvious hat tips to Cezanne, because how do you do studio still lifes after Cezanne and not have them be somewhat about Cezanne? I, I guess, had you ever thought about Diebenkorn's still lifes as being particularly Bernardian, or were they always Matisse for you? Well, it's just, you know, it's, it was saying earlier, you know, I, I I think that they relate to a lot of different artists. It's just that the artists that were, we chose to to uh, explore them with is through the lens of, of Matisse for this project. So I think they, you know, they, they definitely connect to Cezanne and, and so do Matisse's. That's, it's, they're, you know, they're part of that same, that same lineage. But it was, it was one thing that I, you know, I, I love thinking about is how both artists, both Matisse and Diebenkorn, you know, really loved to paint what was close at hand, loved to paint the things that were, you know, were in the studio and uh, that that meant something to them. When Diebenkorn begins to bring the figure back in in the late 1950s, you argue that he finds precedent in, in Matisse in what seems like uh, maybe a weird place, and that is chairs. The more I thought about it, the more it made a lot of sense because de Kooning took the same thing out of out of out of Matisse in the tens and twenties, um, tens and teens. What do you think Diebenkorn got out of chairs, and why do you think that they were important to him? Well, you know, the the chair again is a it's a studio prop, right? It's something that he would have had in you know pretty much any room that he was painting in, and it's it's kind of fun to look at Matisse interiors with Diebenkorn interiors and see some of the differences between the chairs, you know, the kind of overstuffed chairs that you see in some of Matisse's niece interiors, for instance, and Diebenkorn, you know, tends to, to prefer the, you know, the, the austere folding metal chair is what you see most typically in his, 
his representational canvases. Sometimes others, you know, there's a cane chair. There's there are others too. Even that cane chair is a pretty austere cane chair. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it casts a good shadow, and he, you know, there it's. You know, when you when you see an empty chair, you do sort of think about absence as well as presence in these in these paintings. And so I think there's a you know there's a suggestion of figures even when the figures aren't there. But you know you you see a lot of paintings that include chairs throughout this period of Diebenkorn's career. In fact, that could be yet another exhibition subject. There's a Diebenkorn in the show, a promised gift to SF MoMA of of, of a yellow chair. And it's the painting. That's the painting that got me thinking about how, how just over and over and over again, de Kooning puts women in yellow chairs. It's it's a pretty explicit tip of the hat to Matisse, who who um, for whom yellow chairs just run through the oeuvre for 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 decades. The the best thing that's in the catalog that I don't recall being in the show, and that I immediately felt stupid for not having thought about before I read the catalog, is Indian miniature painting. How and when does Diebenkorn find or discover Indian miniature painting? And is there a Matisse link? Well, he he knew that Matisse was collecting Indian miniatures, and um, he encountered them at a, you know, via a print dealer in San Francisco, and really loved them. And they were among the works of art that he installed in his own home, you know, various homes. And in, in looking at the specific miniatures that he that Deben Corn and his wife Phyllis owned, you know, you can you can you can see ways in which those little scenes, again, color, structure, uh, work their way into his own into his own painting. And and Diebenkorn even acknowledged that his his interest in Indian miniatures, you know, probably came out of what what Matisse did with them. Is one of the places he gets that at the barns, do you think? Where he discovers the influence of, of Indian miniature painting and Matisse at the barns? Yeah, I mean, he went to the barns in uh, in 1959 or 60. Let's see. So, you know, Diebenkorn would have started collecting miniatures prior to his visit to to the barn. So, I'm not sure, you know, if that's the if that you know could have been the you know the link, the specific link. He starts acquiring Indian miniature paintings around um, 54. The painting I'm thinking of that. It seems where there's there's a relationship is the portrait in the main gallery in Marion, or not in Marion anymore, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll all be doing it th- that the, the, rest, the rest of the road. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's it's not until nineteen nineteen sixty that he he visited the barns, but he knew some of those 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 works through reproduction. In black and white, in bl- albeit in black exactly. and white. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because um, of course there are no color reproductions of Barnes paintings until ninety one, I think. There are a a couple things in the show uh, that just kind of run through it that aren't aren't linked to any particular period or or painting or a couple of paintings, and one of them is the way Matisse paints faces and the way Diebenkorn paints or doesn't paint faces. What did you and maybe do you still find interesting in in how the two of them painted faces and what Diebenkorn took from the way Matisse painted faces? Well, Diebenkorn was impressed by the way Matisse painted faces, and uh, and and with as much respect as he had for Matisse, he really felt like you know Matisse could pretty much have it any way he wanted. He could paint, he could fully articulate a face, he could he could really capture you know the essence of a person using 
a real economy of means. Some of the faces that we see in the Matisse paintings in the exhibition are are very stylized. Some are, you know, are really carefully and exquisitely rendered. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, blue eyes, for instance. And then, you know, there's a there's a variety of approaches of approaches that Diebenkorn takes in his own work as well. A lot of a lot of times he leaves the faces fairly generalized, where um, you don't see a, a very detailed articulation of features. To my mind, it's unusual to see a figurative Diebenkorn that really feels like a portrait. They generally don't. And we'll come back to um, a specific painting and a specific face or non-face in a moment. But but before we do, one of my absolute favorite sections of the show um, is 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 the inclusion of of so many drawings by by each artist. And it is, uh, I think, without question, the place where it is clearest that Diebenkorn takes a ton from Matisse. Um, I, I think you could almost make the argument that something like 80 or 85 percent of Diebenkorn's drawing practice comes out of Matisse. It's, 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 it feels to me like where he learned how to draw. What in the drawings and, and, and the relationship between Matisse's drawings and Diebenkorn's drawings do you find most interesting? Well, one of the the great discoveries that my co-curator, Katie Rothkoff, made was the relationship between Matisse's reclining model with a flowered robe um, from the early 20s and Diebenkorn's um, woman seated in a chair from the early 60s. They're, they both happen to be drawings in the Baltimore Museum's collection. And the and the, that, that particular duo was really what got her thinking about an exhibition, bringing these two artists together. They're, you know, they both feature single women in interiors, and there's a, a really striking relationship between the the fabric, the clothing between the two figures. Um, but there's there's so there's so many ways in which I think the Matisse drawings and Diebenkorn drawings are are connected, and the, the what what Matisse was doing with the model and what Diebenkorn did with the model and uh, and the way that you you see so such an ease in the relationship between the artist and and the model in these in these drawings and a again a willingness to very sort of openly share the creative process on these on these finished sheets where there's many 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 erasures and 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 all that becomes part of the the final composition it's almost hard to see how spare the lines of mini Diebenkorn drawings are for all the erasure and that's something that is evident in so many Matisse drawings too we are uh, in this show going to pretty much skip the the post-Russia work, the, 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 the work Diebenkorn makes after seeing uh, Matisse on a trip to, to Soviet Russia. Um, and we're going to save that for when we have Katie Rothkopf on when the show arrives in San Francisco. But I, I, I don't want to close before we get to um, a painting that will be in San Francisco and is not in Baltimore, but is in the catalog. Um, and it's one of those paintings in which Diebenkorn obscures or or expressly refuses to paint a face onto a model. And that's the 1966 painting Nude on a Blue Ground. 
which hadn't been exhibited in many years until it was at, until it was in Tim Burgard's show in San Francisco, and it's in yours too. Could you talk about why you think the, what the relationship between Matisse and and that painting is? It's the la- I, I should add one other thing. It's the last painting, the very last painting Matisse made in Berkeley before moving to LA. So the nude on a blue ground is just a fantastic painting. It's you know a Diebenkorn positions the figure on the canvas where it she's she's both cut off at the toes and at the top of her head so the figure kind of fully occupies his support in this really really kind of bold way when we were thinking about this painting a, a group of matisse's more sort of academic paintings came to mind the nude study in blue that's in the Tate collection that's from the turn of the last century. There was also a piece that was in the 1966 retrospective that he he saw in LA um, from around the same time where you have um, standing female figures with that that are are holding their bodies in, in, in really interesting interesting ways. And so this this piece was one that the the nude on a blue ground was a, a really high priority for for the exhibition. Nude on a Blue Ground is also the clearest example, maybe in the entire Matisse, uh, Diebenkorn oeuvre, of a mask-like face. I mean, the face is a mask. Any thoughts on where that comes from? Well, you know, it's, um, again, Diebenkorn being as serious a student of art history as he, as he was, he certainly would have had sources for that in, you know, in artists like like Picasso, for instance, and uh, and I also think it'll be interesting when the show comes to San Francisco to see the relationship between that nude on a blue ground from '66 and the seated woman from '67 and the face on that particular painting, which is also which is which is also mask-like in in some ways. The the in in the '67 painting, the curve of the chair in the left foreground is reminiscent of the curve behind the nude in the '66 painting, both of which are strikingly similar to the curve in uh, in Yale's Ocean Park painting, which I think is number uh, 24. Janet Bishop, thanks so much. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington D.C stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. 
important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest is Jill Lloyd, a former lecturer in 20th century art at University College London and the former editor of Art International magazine. She's also curated or co-curated exhibitions at the Neue Gallery, the National Gallery of Art, the Van Gogh Museum, and more. She'll join me to discuss Klimt and the Women of Vienna's Golden Age, 1900 to 1918, the exhibition which is at New York's Neue Gallery through January 16th, and in particular, the essay she contributed to the show's catalog, which is really terrific. It's titled The Viennese Woman, A Community of Strength. Jill Lloyd, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Your essay, and it's placing as the first essay in this really quite extraordinary catalog, argues that to understand Klimt's work and Klimt's importance, that we have to understand the condition of and for women in turn of the century or late 19th century and in, in, in turn of the 20th century Vienna. The show essentially starts in the last few years of the 19th century. So what was it like? What was life like? What was political life like for women in Vienna at that time? And how was it changing fast? Well, I think it depended very much what kind of position in society you you occupied as a woman in Viennese society at that time. But life was changing very fast. There was a huge influx into Vienna from the many corners of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at that moment in the 1890s, and a vast sort of growth of the poor working class population, and a huge disparity, really, between the the ordinary working people and the very small elite class of wealthy Viennese. And the women who, obviously, this is a period where, uh, on top of everything else, the kind of Catholic traditions would have meant that uh, you, the, the, the whole ambition of a woman's life was to make the best marriage they could, certainly middle-class women. But having said that, a very small percentage of Viennese middle-class women worked outside the family home, and a very large percentage of women, much bigger than in the States or in the UK at the same time, were working in factories, factory assistants, maids, uh, seamstresses. So there was a large working population of women on the lower sort of echelons of society. But beyond a certain point, it was very hard for a woman to pursue any career or profession of any kind, certainly after she was married. You write about how also at this time, a, a Viennese feminism, to use a modern word, a, a Viennese feminism was emerging. What was that feminism interested in, engaged with, and who were the people in society, um, who, who who were those feminists? Well, again, it's very much split into the different 
class groups, uh, depending who you were, what your possibilities were. And this increasingly polarized in, in Viennese feminism. I suppose the first people to introduce these ideas were the women of the upper classes the, in the 18th century, women who ran social salons. And they, many of these women were Jewish. They invited politicians, artists, poets, and so on to their homes. And these were kind of arenas of, of really free, liberal conversation and discourse, bringing people together, bringing women, bringing Jewish people together very often, who would have had a hard time making their voices heard through the normal social and political channels. So that was a very important element of sort of laying the foundations for, 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 for women's discussion about women's liberation, particularly in the sort of upper and middle classes. But after the 1848 revolution, there was also a movement coming from beneath, from the, the lower classes, uh, which, was which was very radical and organizing strikes and demonstrations and so on and so forth, trying to uh, discuss issues like women's pay and, and women's working hours. So again, it sort of came from two directions, and but it was very difficult for those those demonstrations coming from the working class women's movement to hold political rallies. They were banned from the 1860s onwards, and so in a way, women got driven into non-confrontational rebellion, if you like, and. In those terms, I guess it was the middle-class women who had access to kind of cultural and educational forums who pushed things forward. Klimt will end up partnered to one of those middle-class women. We'll come to her in a minute. But in the context of, of this catalog and the exhibition at the Neue Gallery, how important is it to Klimt that these women are, are modern, feminist, and Jewish? Well, of course, he in a way, spans this kind of spectrum of women that I've been talking about. Because, yes, his patronesses like Adele Bourbauer, the most famous, were from this elite, highly educated, liberal circle of Jewish intellectuals. And they were all involved, all the women that he portrays in his famous portraits were involved to a greater or lesser extent with the educational incentives for improving the position of women and things like this. But of course, on the other hand, he had his models, his artist models in his studio. He lived in a kind of harem of artist models. And being an artist model in those days was something that may have happened if you've lost your job as a maid or you've lost your job in the factory and you're really on the lowest possible. There was very little distinction between slipping into prostitution and slipping into being an artist model. So once again, I think Klimt is really aware of this, this big spectrum of women's experiences. He aligns himself with the modern, liberal, free-thinking women uh, who became his patrons because they had similar aspirations. Uh, his aspirations for art and their aspirations for women's liberation were not so different. They were both fighting a kind of rigid, controlled, patriarchal society. Let's pivot to a painting that's not in the show, but which might serve as kind of a good um, introduction to some of these ideas. In 1899, 
Klimt makes a painting of Adele Blockbauer, known today as Judith or Judith One. Is it possible, and, and that painting's at the Belvedere in, in Vienna, is it possible in the context of what we've been talking about and what we now know to consider that painting as a kind of, and of course Judith being a biblical Jewish heroine, is it possible to consider that painting as a kind of declaration of intent or an ideological visual comment or statement? Well, I think that is a very interesting way of looking at it. And quite possibly, you are absolutely correct. I mean, there is no, in, there was no obligation for Klimt to make that painting. He was interested in Judith as, as you say, a historical warrior-like Jewish woman. And the fact that he puts Adele Blochbauer's features on her, on her face is really very interesting. I think his allegorical, mythological paintings are very often sort of aimed at making some kind of intervention in the debates that are going on about women's roles and women's history at the time. So that's an interesting idea, yes. Are there any of the portraits in the show, one or two, that you think also do that, that that engage with debates at the time, ideas of the time, or maybe women of the time who were particularly engaged in these debates? Well, I think uh, in a way they all do. But perhaps, you know, if we look at the most famous of all the paintings, at the uh, Adele Blochbauer, The Woman in Gold, you know, to me, there's a very interesting sort of fracture, if you like, between this. He paints her almost like a, a kind of a goddess, really. She's, she's raised, she's in gold. Uh, he was influenced by Byzantine representations of the empress and so on. And of course, this was very flattering for the women and for their husbands to see their wives uh, portrayed in this way. Um, and on the most obvious level, that, that that is what he's doing. But I think if you then look at the style and you look at the way that there's this kind of, almost like a kind of encasement, a kind of frozen, rigid, rigid uh, treatment of, of dress and the surrounding decoration. And then this very natural treat, naturalist treatment of the face and the hands. You know, the, I think what she's perhaps doing with the style maybe carries some messages. And, you know, the, 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 the total fracture, if you like, between social expectations of women at this time. The fact that Adele Brockbauer was an immensely wealthy woman, uh, but when she married, her fortune, you know, was, was automatically belonged to her husband. The social expectations of women to play a supportive role and not to go out into the world and not to enter into the fray of politics. And then, but who are these women really? You know, there's, there's also this, this naturalist style used for their, for their flesh, for their face, for their features, which suggests, you know, in a way something kind of nature trying to break out of this iron framework of social expectation. And these were the kind of issues that were discussed very much in the feminist literature at the time. Your essay makes the really interesting point that I think is relevant to to what you're 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 pointing out about Adele and her fortune. By by law, women's fortunes passed to their husbands at time of marriage. Husbands owned the home, but women could own what was in the home, including clipped paintings of themselves. That's true. That is true. That they were allowed to own the contents of the of the home. Yes, and of course, this becomes a very important issue. Uh, later on, 
with the whole history of what happens to Adele's painting of Adele's portrait. But in terms of their, you know, we have to remember that they didn't, these are women who didn't have the right to vote. I mean, the vote comes in, in, in much later than it does in the U.S. Uh, ten, it's 1918. I think the first women's votes in America are 1910. They don't go to, they have no right to go to the art academy until 1920. Before that, they make their, uh, any woman who wants to be an artist is studying in the School of Applied Arts. So, it is a very conservative society we're looking at, extremely conservative. I think, you know, Klimt's work you know, is, is paying, in a way, a homage to these women who are, are trying to change the, the, the face of the world. It seems worth remembering that, given all that, the commissioning, that a woman commissioning a portrait from Klimt, an ally of Jews and Jewish causes in Vienna, was a an explicitly political act. They could own that portrait. Their husband did not. Well, that's a very good point. Yes, it is theirs. It's something that is about their identity and their status in society. However much it, you know, is 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 re- reflecting perhaps also their husband's uh, desire to see their women and their their wives in this beautiful guise. Uh, it is their identity uh, in many different ways that's being reaffirmed by these portraits, yes. I've mostly been bringing up Klimt's wealthy clients and often friends and often more, and I have rather uh, neglected Klimt's own partner. Who was she and how is she a good example of both feminist modernity in Vienna well, that, that's a marvelous point because Emily Fleurger is, is, you know, in every way a modern woman and that Klimt chose to have her as his permanent partner. She never married him, but of course, if she'd married him, she wouldn't have been free to do, in society's terms, have whatever attitude Klimt took, she wouldn't have been free to do, run her business. She was an extremely successful uh, business running um, a fashion design brand and she was a a representative of what they called reform fashion at the time which was this movement amongst you know the women's liberation to get rid of the corset uh, the symbolic corset you know which uh, reined you in and which also physically made you extremely uncomfortable and to have loose flowing clothes which meant that you could you could work you could you know move around the streets you could uh, in, enjoy life uh, much more and Emily Fleurger, we see these beautiful she was a beautiful woman a, a strong tall um, attractive woman in Klimt's portrait of her and also in many photographs and she's always wearing this reform fashion you know that was what she that's what she did Emily I think there's a wonderful photograph which I think I mentioned in my essay where they're both they used to take these summer trips to the Atese together and they are standing together wearing caftans Klimt liked to wear this sort of androgynous Kaftan, and she's wearing one too. And there's this lovely feeling of a kind of rapprochement between the sexes, you know. And it was precisely these kind of blurring of the hard and fast boundaries that the 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 men who were so concerned, the anti-feminists, the uh, the people who were fighting the feminist movement, you know, they were absolutely kind of hysterically worried that the sort of contrast between men and women were were being lost, and they felt very threatened by that. 
But Klimt doesn't, I don't think. Not for a minute. I don't want to over-read into that picture. We'll try to have that, that picture on manpodcast.com. But this snap in, in this snapshot, she towers over him. <laughs> yes, yes, that as well. <laughs> he's short, she's not. <laughs> yeah. And he's, and he's apparently doesn't happy. bother him. Right, right. Yeah, he looks perfectly relaxed about it, yes. No, he's happy, and that, I think, is very unusual at this time, to allow yourself to be pictured in, you know, what is ne- nevertheless, in terms of the times, feminine garb, you know, standing next to a woman who is taller than you, who is a free, independent woman doing her thing. Uh, I think that says a lot about Klimt. It seems all a reminder that we should remember his photographs of her and his paintings of her fashions, both on her and I guess others, as being an example of Klimt's engagement with Frauenfrage. That's my horrible German accent, sorry, Um, or Austrian accent, sorry. That that his willingness to more than willingness his uh, insistence might not be the right word either but but the way he chooses to portray her and her work says something about his what we would now call feminism and his modernity. Yes, I think that's true, and I think in a way he was you know there comes a moment where really Klimt paints just women, be it in his portraits or in his in his allegorical works as well. Sometimes men come into those, but then it's mainly about women. And I think one of the the the, the sort of points I try and make in my essay is because women were a kind of symbol also of modernity, of the changes that were happening in society. And of course, Klimt is very much at the forefront of the changes happening in, in Viennese culture, Viennese painting, Viennese thought. And, you know, so they're women are his subject because women are his way of engaging with all this, these, these exciting changes of modernity. Jill Lloyd, thanks so much for speaking with me. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And I hope everybody who does get a chance to see the exhibition enjoys it very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.